Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're especially happy to have Robert Galatly on the show. He is an esteemed historian of Nazi Germany and Germany in general. I suppose I should add Russia to that mix at Florida State University. He's recently written and published a book entitled Lenin, Stalin, and Hitler, The Age of Social Catastrophe. It was issued by Alfred A. Knopf in 2007. Um, Robert is a fantastically gifted historian and, as you'll see, eloquent person. I really enjoyed talking to him, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Robert. Hi, Marshall. Um, Today we have Robert Gladley on the show, and he's the author of um, Lenin, Stalin, and Hitler, The Age of Social Catastrophe. He teaches at uh, Florida State University in Tallahassee, and we're extraordinarily happy to have him. Um, Robert, thanks for giving us your time today. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure entirely. Um, perhaps you could uh, begin the interview by telling us, in our customary fashion, a little bit about yourself, that is, where you grew up, how you became interested in history, where you went to school, and so on and so forth. Right. Well, it's almost a history in itself, but I'll cut it short. I was born and raised in the distant far north of Canada uh, in a um, little town uh, called St. John's in Newfoundland. Um, uh, They had a university there, I'm happy to say, and um, the natural um, pull of the university or of students graduating from the university was to go to England, and so I I set off to the University of London uh, at the London School of Economics where I did my Ph.D., and um, I did that uh, in, in um, the 1970s, after which I went on to uh, Germany, where I did a postdoctoral fellowship, um, and uh, then came back to the United States. I got a position in the United States at Cornell. And thereafter, my wife and I, uh, she had a job in Canada, and I had a job in uh, the U.S., and we had a family, and we thought this wasn't going to work, so yeah. I applied for a position back in Canada. Mm-hmm. And, of course, if you have a, a job already, it's easy to get another one, and <laughs> I got one. Yeah, great. So um, I didn't think, to be honest with you, it would affect my academic career quite as uh, much as it did. I thought I could do my research anywhere, but in fact, you really need to be in a fairly major center to be able uh-huh. to to carry on your work. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, to make a long story short, about um, uh, 10 years ago, uh, a position I was offered, um, I was asked to apply for a position as um, a chair in Holocaust history at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I know it well. And you know, it's a you know, it's a great program and a great school. Yeah. And um, I then I was in the midst of finishing some things, and um, I I went back to my old um, um, sort of graduate undergraduate work 
where I had specialized in Russian history, and I was becoming more and more interested in Russian history. Uh-huh. And I was doing research in Moscow, uh-huh. and I got a call from um, the history department here where they were looking for some senior professors. Uh-huh. And uh, the the email I got was, would you be interested in a position which uh, pays a lot more money and requires a lot less teaching? <laughs> I think we all wait for that call. I'm waiting well, for mine right the, now. <laughs> this is the Michael Anthony call yeah. sort of stuff. And um, in about a nanosecond, yeah. I thought, yes, I think I want to be considered for this job. Yeah, I'm uh, glad it, somebody gets that call. <laughs> well, you know, it, uh, it happened. Of course, initially you think position in... You know, uh, as senior professor, you think, yeah, what's this about now? So I then ended up, uh, indeed, there was a strenuous competition for the position. I was lucky enough to get it. And um, so uh, now I'm at FSU where I teach um, a, a German and Russian and also sort of compared a lot of comparative courses where I'm teaching, for example, this term, uh, courses in comparative genocide mm-hmm. and um, assorted topics like that. So it's been quite a quite a long journey. Yeah. I began my undergraduate career, just to go back for a second, with an emphasis on Russian history where mm-hmm. I was particularly fascinated with the Russian intelligentsia, mm-hmm. these, these group of uh, radical intellectuals at the end of the 19th century. And it, it, it moved forward from there, and um, I got involved eventually in German history. And uh, now, uh, after publishing a lot on German history, I've come back to of all things Russian history again, and so I'm, I'm sort of uh, rediscovering the interests of my youth. Mm-hmm. That's terrific. Who did you work with in Russian history at the uh, University of London? Who was there? Well, now, the, at the, when I w- went there, they don't really have those kind of designations. Oh, they yeah. have at the LSE um, in London, they, what they have is uh, oh, a department called yeah. International History. Uh-huh. Um, and so I worked there with Professor James Joel, uh-huh. who was you know, he's more involved in German and um, socialist and uh, anarchist um, kind of kind of history. A very, um, a very open and friendly atmosphere there where they more or less let you do what you want to do. Uh-huh. And um, I was particularly interested at that time um, in the history of anti-Semitism uh-huh. with special emphasis on imperial Germany. And um, basically, my PhD thesis and first book uh, dealt with the social history of um, a group of people who were anti-Semitic in Imperial Germany. Yeah, why don't we talk a little bit about that? What was that first book on again? The first book actually was called. Um, it was meant to be a takeoff on another famous book at the time, but it was called "The Politics of Economic Despair," uh-huh. and it dealt with the a group um, some with a German. Um, term the middle stand yep. or the middle class uh-huh. but not our american sense of middle class but in the sense of a of a group between the workers and the, the working class and the the um, bourgeoisie or the upper classes mm-hmm. so these people were always thought to be particularly anti-semitic and it was almost a cliche and a given and i wanted to really investigate that more closely because there was no work done on the social history of imperial germany at mm-hmm. that time and it turned out that um, it wasn't so obvious, uh, and the, the cases weren't so obvious, and it turned it was it had a tremendous impact. Uh, the book did on the study of these um, these um, uh, sort of um, middle class individuals 
I mean, shopkeeper class mm-hmm. and their politics. And um, it, it fostered a lot of work in Britain and France and uh, in Germany as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. I was encouraged by uh, a, a late great professor at uh, Berkeley, Gerald Feldman. Oh yeah, I knew uh, him. I knew him personally. Actually, I was he was a tremendous person, unbelievable enthusiasm. Yeah, no, it's true. And uh, when I when I when I had finished this book and uh, had come back to the, the North America, he encouraged me to. He wanted me to get involved in a project he was involved in at the time and remained involved really for the rest of his life, namely the German inflation. Yeah. And he wanted me to, to take the period from the First World War where I'd focused and focus on the what happened to the same groups of people during the Great Inflation, mm-hmm. the greatest inflation probably in world history yeah. in 1923 in Germany. Mm-hmm. And to be very honest with you, I thought I really didn't want to be uh, pigeonholed as a uh, as a historian of the shopkeepers. I had enough uh, <laughs> shopkeepers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not that I have disdain for some. I mean, I, many shopkeepers are great friends of mine, but I <laughs> did not want to do this, so I had to resist it. And um, so funny, I was. I was going to say hmm? it's, it's funny you mentioned that because you know one of the things I've talked about with other historians is. Uh, doing this podcast is the frustration that some of us feel in being, as you put it, pigeonholed. And, and this happened in my own career. I mean, I, I had written several books on early modern Russia, uh, and I felt I knew everything I wanted to know about early modern Russia. Mm-hmm. Yet the expectation was that I was still to write other books about early modern Russia. Right. I, I, I didn't really, want to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, very, it's very difficult to get out of the pigeonhole that really people is. put you yeah, in. It really you is. Know, yeah. Even now, when I'm when, when when my books are reviewed and so on, you know, it, they invariably rehearse the fact that uh, he is a German historian. Yeah, I mean, right. it doesn't matter if I if, if I've learned Russian and I've gone into yeah, Russian right. um, um, history Material, and yeah. this, I am forever pigeonholed. Oh, and should it. a job come up, yeah. I have to. In my job talk, I would have to make a case for. Actually, I'm a comparativist. Yeah, that would be the best I could hope for. It's really uh, so when I. When I came here, that's what I did. Yeah. You know, basically say, um, I've now moved into comparative history, and yeah. so people can buy that. Yeah. So maybe that's what you ought to do to sort of sell yourself as a I comparativist. Suspect, but it's very strange in the sense that my wife is a mathematician. I think I've mentioned this on other podcasts, but I, you know, have occasion to talk to mathematicians, and I tell them that most historians work on the same topic or at least the same sort of period place their whole lives, and they can hardly believe it. No mathematician would ever do that. Yes. Nobody yes. would ever. They think, they think we're crazy. And I think we're crazy, too. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think, uh, well, of course, now what's happened, what happened to me then is that I started to, um, I was, um, uh, once I got through this and I was in my, into my teaching, I was looking for another topic. And um, I was doing archival research, and I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to do, which was essentially... Uh, what I wanted to do was to take uh, to do a history of uh, anti-Semitism, <clears throat> the history of anti-Semitism, going from Imperial Germany, let's say from 1914, all the way through to 1945. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, look, this is a, this is a topic which at that time it seemed to me was uh, under-researched and really needed a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And I felt that I really knew this topic and it would be very easy for me to write this book. Mm-hmm. And so I set off to Germany to sort of just fill in some um, some places that I felt, you know, I needed to, to brush up or to get some primary sources and so on. 
And so I started in the north of Germany, and I worked down until I got to Munich. And um, when I was in Munich, I was working away, and I had everything was settled completely. And I was uh, quite happy, and uh, it was a day before I was going to go home. And the archivists, um, who are usually incredibly unfriendly and uh, <laughs> uncooperative, uh-huh. um, and there was one who was cooperative, and he said, um, Lately, uh, before you go home, you know, we are currently um, uh, doing, a, um, a, a, we are currently putting um, uh, an index uh, for special files that are very rare. And we have them in house now. These are 19,000 files uh-huh. of the Geheime Staatspolizei, the, wow. the dreaded Gestapo, Gestapo yeah. um, or Secret State Police. And these people, uh, these files, he said rather, are uh, extremely rare. They exist almost nowhere in Germany. They've all been destroyed. And so maybe you'd like to have a look at these oh, because there's goodness. a lot about, obviously, about anti-Semitism in them. Yeah. So I come into this room and it's packed to the ceiling with these um, old files and I look through these files and they're all um, personal files just like our your present everyday ordinary uh, file folder mm-hmm. and uh, they're by person, that is to say by by the person by you know Smith, John, yeah. Ruth, jo- Jones, Ruth and so on. So it's impossible to sort of make head nor tail of what they are really all about. And so I started going through them. Some of them are like one page. Some of them are 500 pages of loose leaf all scattered all over the place. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out what is this. And what it was, was a, were the files that the police created whenever anybody was um, suspected or accused or brought in for arrest. Mm-hmm. And so they started a file immediately and they kept track of these various cases. Some people had 10 old fences or some people had just one one page, uh, you know, someone phoned in about them or something like or marital dispute mm-hmm. or whatever. So I thought I, you know, I didn't really know quite what to do with those. Um, and I thought I thought they were very important, but um, they'd never been studied before. No one had really ever seen them before. And so I came back the following year when these files were back in this little tiny town in the middle of Germany called Würzburg, mm-hmm. which is just approximately a hundred miles or so east and south uh, of Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. And I went into the into the archive and I started going through these files. And um, what developed, in fact, was uh, it was quite interesting because in the archive, you know, it's just a, a one big table with all the users in there, the various users of the archive, these would be mostly people interested in their family history or, you know, looking at, you know, um, what happened to our house or some property issue or something like that. And I'm sitting there in the midst of this with these big stack of files with all these, uh, you know, they're all stamped, you know, top secret and so on on them. Mm -hmm. And uh, people are coming up and wondering, "What what is this person doing? So finally, an elderly gentleman came up to me, and uh, um, we went outside, and he said, uh, you'd probably like to interview me because I used to live here at that time. Oh, really? And I said, well, you know, actually, I'll, I can say this to you. At that time, at least, I didn't think very much of oral history, uh-huh. and I was a little unsure about the what I should do. So I, I said, well, look, let's just have a coffee, and let me just ask you some questions. Uh-huh. Because as I read through the file, as you read through these files, 
you start to make a mental picture of how how the, how the police could get so much information. I mean, where did it come from? And mm-hmm. you know, um, they must have had the first thing you think of. There must have been police everywhere, and. I have no idea. I mean, most amateur, most, I mean, I had an amateur or a beginning, um, a very rudimentary uh, understanding of what the police system was all about and mm-hmm. the SS and all that sort of thing. So I said to him, look, um, you know, what about this and this and this? And I asked all these questions. And then I finally said, by the way, um, were there a lot of uh, uh, Gestapo here during the war years? I mean, you lived here. He said, oh, they were everywhere. They were everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And so I said, well, of course, you know, once I, I said to myself, well, once I go back to the U.S. Um, and give this paper on the, based on these files, people, the first thing they're going to ask me is, well, how many is a lot? You know, how many, how many is a lot of policemen and how many exactly are there? So I had to nail down exactly how, how many there were. And I went back and asked the archivists. And, of course, typically they said, that's one of the dumbest questions we've been ever asked. And on it went, it turned out to be quite difficult to ascertain just exactly how many there were. Mm-hmm. But I did, after many archive trips and many other archives, I eventually figured out uh, a, a method of uh, discovering how many police were in every single German city, in mm-hmm. fact. And so I can tell you every single city, and the dates and, and precisely how many uh, members of the police were there. Mm-hmm. And the reason I found the key was how the how the secret police got their automobiles. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. Contrary to popular belief, not every member of the of the of the secret police in Germany had their own Mercedes. Yeah. You know, they you got them according to the population, according to some a figure called the number of enemies or suspected enemies, uh-huh. uh, the length of the border that may or may not have passed through your region, etc., uh-huh. etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So I could determine Exactly, and uh, you know, more or less the, the the number of Gestapo per capita. That is just remarkably clever. Let me just say, unbelievable. That. <laughs> yeah, well, what was really amazing is that we have an area which is a fairly large area, larger than say the average, if there's such a thing as the average American county, say yep. three or four counties. Uh, this would be Lower Franconia in Germany, mm-hmm. but three or four counties with over a million uh, population, with one city uh, of 100,000, um, an area that was Catholic and therefore anti, more or less anti-Nazi. Yeah. And for, to cover all of this, they had a grand total of 20 police officers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, so, I, so I thought to myself, okay, ten of these, ten of these twenty, actually more than that, but ten of these twenty were involved in what the Germans called desk work, mm-hmm. and ten were actually involved in police work. So to police all of that area with ten individuals. Yeah. Now these ten individuals put together uh, what survived uh, a grand total of nineteen thousand files. So I thought, how in hell could the few people? Yeah. So few possibly put this together. Yeah. And the answer, I began to see the answer was, whoa, it is not the, yeah. the proverbial police state. It is, in fact, the reason that they can do this is that friends and neighbors, ordinary Germans, are coming forward volunteering information to the police. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, it's very interesting you mentioned that because I had a similar sort of revelation that I did not follow up on. I have to say, I'm sure there's somebody following up on it. I was teaching a class a number of years ago on um, Stalin and Stalinism, and we were reviewing statistics, 
about the number of people that were killed by the NKVD. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd, I'd also studied the Holocaust, obviously, and the Holocaust <laughs> is extraordinarily well mm-hmm. researched, and we know uh, a lot about how the actual killings were prosecuted. We don't know much about it in the Soviet case, or we haven't until recently. And so I remember just doing a small statistical exercise with my students, um, comparing um, the number of people that we knew were in the NKVD at the time and in the place with the number of people that were were reported to have been killed. Right. And the numbers just didn't add up at all. There was simply no, no way that number of people could have killed all, you know, the mass that they were supposedly to have killed. So right. something else was going on. You know, it right. just they wasn't... They were getting... It wasn't logistically possible. Yeah, because I mean, I knew from the German case, the Germans had more or less tested this in the Whoa. field. Um, you know, how many people does it take to kill how many people? And it was clear that these numbers were far in excess of anything the NKVD could have done. Well, now, you see, the thing is, in my new book, which we'll, we're, you know, that we'll talk about in a second, but the, uh, the Lenin, Stalin, Hitler book, yeah. one, what I show there in, in the Soviet Union, and in fact, reinforces your point in that um, the way the Soviets uh, proceeded as opposed to the way the Nazis proceeded, the Nazis proceeded by having uh, the neighbors and friends and so forth talk to the police and come inform, send anonymous letters, Mm -hmm. telephone, every which way. But they wanted this popular participation in the policing system. Mm -hmm. The way the Soviets operated, they didn't have enough um, secret police to do the work that you suggest they were doing. That's quite right. And so they proceeded by way of setting quotas. Yeah, that's right. So they set quotas, and people, the police, fulfilled these quotas in the most absurd way yeah, thinkable. Yeah, that's right. For example, going to um, going to an ordinary fire, a building on fire, and cordoning off all the people surrounding it, and and then charging them with subversion, yeah. or in the case of, for example, when they were in this Polish campaign, anti-Polish campaign at one stage in the 1930s, they, um, they in desperation to try to fulfill their quota, um, the policemen just went down through telephone books looking for Polish-sounding names yeah, no, and tracked them down, just got them that way. Yeah, so no, it's absolutely, right. yeah. but it's quite a contrast. Yeah, it is quite and, a contrast, you're right. No, that's true. No, so, I remember, so, yeah. Go ahead. But see, the 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 the... the this brings out the contrast that I make in the new uh, the, the Lenin, Stalin, Hitler book, which is that, and this is of course controversial. It's going to be controversial that Nazi Germany was essentially a consensus dictatorship, yeah. and that is to say, it was it basically built on and required, and uh, they they sought the, to be an authoritarian dictatorship, uh-huh. but also popular. Uh-huh. Whereas in the Soviet Union, um, Stalin. And Lenin before him, and then Stalin were not interested in consensus. They were not interested in public opinion. Uh-huh. They were the avant-garde. Yeah. They knew what was best, yeah. and so they would um, basically set quotas and all the rest of it. They didn't give a hoot for public opinion. Theirs was an avant-garde dictatorship, mm-hmm. and so that's a, that's the major contrast I bring mm-hmm. out in my book, as opposed to all the the other books that, that compare the two uh, regimes, um, yeah. the Nazi and Stalin systems. Uh-huh. Let's talk a little bit about the historiographical context since you mentioned it. Um, what had been thought by professional historians about the relationship between, um, you know, sort of popular participation and support and the Nazi regime prior to your own work? Well, it's amazing, actually. I mean, most people put the emphasis on the uh, the power of the state. The, 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 they sort of implied but never really asked the, the simple question, how was policy enforced? 
they took it for granted that it was done some way, wasn't really pursued. Mm-hmm. And uh, the result was there was a lot of mysticism or a lot of, you know, sort of hypotheses or guesses about it, but no one really pursued it. It, it seems like any really, really good um, uh, um, answer in history to an important question. It seems really obvious after you found the answer. It seems so, well, why didn't I think of that? And the answer is, well, um, what kind of cooperation did the, did the police in Nazi Germany get from the population? That seems like an obvious question. We know in the United States that it's impossible for a police to work without the cooperation of citizenry. Mm-hmm. We know, to make a, a, a dramatic contrast, we know that in Iraq, the difficulty with the United the United States is running into there on the ground is that they cannot get the cooperation of um, ordinary Iraqis because, of course, they're threatened and all the rest of it. But that's neither here nor there. The fact is, it's very difficult to get that cooperation, and there'll never be enough Americans to do this until they unless and until they can get that cooperation. Now, what I did was take this. I mean, I just sort of discovered this, and there was this this sort of feeling of that oh. You're trivializing the importance of the Gestapo. Mm-hmm. That was the charge that was leveled against me by, by some historians. And I thought, you know, this is complete nonsense. What, in fact, I am saying is, of course, the Gestapo was perfectly horrible and committed all kinds of abuses. But the Bach doesn't, you know, we cannot use the Gestapo as an alibi for a nation. I mean, it's it's far more involved than that. It is the whole this this is nice for us it's comforting for us to think well they have they had the gestapo um, and they, all these horrible things happened whereas in our society we don't have those horrible people we don't have hitler we don't have the gestapo so those things could never happen here yeah. in fact of course um it's it is precisely this popular participation which is the key ingredient to that system and it got that popular participation you know of course people don't like to hear this but it's i'm afraid it's true they got the cooper- the cooperation of the population to the bitter end in 1945. Yeah, they did. Yeah, no. They did. I mean, and the famous picture that you know, Marshall, of the Soviet soldier planting the red flag in Berlin on the top of the of the parliament building, uh-huh. the Reichstag building, the famous picture. What we always forget is at that time, the there were a German soldiers in the basement of the building that fought on against Soviet troops for days afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you cannot order that. No. You know what I mean? No, no I know. You just can't you order that. I'm always quite uh, interested to tell people and see their reactions when I say, and this may be somewhat inaccurate because I'm not an expert in the period, but that uh, the Nazis, when they had their greatest electoral success, ran on an anti-democratic platform. Mm-hmm. In other words, they explicitly said that they were going to if not close down the Reichstag, they were going to severely limit popular participation by other political groups. This is usually unthinkable to people. I mean, they don't understand this. And that they received a lot of votes on the basis of this platform. Because people were a little bit tired of democracy. They had, had, right. they had, had enough of it. And this is something that to an American mind, and I, I won't speak to the British or whomever, but it's right. completely foreign. We, we cannot understand how anyone can be tired of democracy. But they were, and the Nazis basically were giving them what they wanted. Well, that's absolutely right. You know, uh, in that little town where I was working on the Gestapo, one of the newspapers, I read newspapers and all the rest of it as well, from that period, and one of the newspaper headlines 
from 1932, and this is a, a Catholic area. They never voted socialist, much less uh, for, for the Nazis. This is a non-Nazi area. Uh, and one headline in 1932 ran, um, and I'm quoting, it could just be that what we need is an experiment in dictatorship. Yeah, no, exactly. No, and, and I, you know, like they got they got fed up with the economic troubles, all the endless elections, and and and, and so you know, I've I've been um, used now for the last several years of talking about uh, how the, the the regime took root in German society so quickly. You know, it it, it happened overnight. It was the exact. Um, sort of converse of the Russian Revolution, which was violent and led to civil war and so on, whereas Germany, there was this peculiar phenomenon called a legal revolution. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a contradiction in terms because a revolution, by definition, is supposed to be illegal. Uh -huh. um, but here you have a legal revolution, and uh, the transition is very, very smooth. Uh -huh. Now, all the re all the British reviewers, in particular of my book, recent book, most recent book, the the, the Lenin Stalin Hitler book, what they say is, oh, um, he he forgets the the fact, he downplays the fact that uh, the Nazis in a free election never won a majority. Uh -huh. Now there is an election which Hitler Hitler calls for after he's appointed chancellor on the 30th of January 1933. Mm -hmm. it, one of his demands, one of his only real demands, is that there be a new election called, mm -hmm. and this is called for March. Mm -hmm. It is true that the Nazi party does not win a majority. Mm -hmm. I should add that there are 13 parties and no party in the entire history yeah. of the Republic ever won a majority. Ever won a majority, yes, right. And this, however, they've been the largest number of votes of all time, yeah. and they are a coalition. That is to say, they are running with another party called the Nationalists, uh -huh. and between them, the two of them, they do indeed have a majority. Mm -hmm. They do have a majority. Yeah. But what's, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, if you look at the, the, the autobiographies or the the um, a particular one, which was a real big hit uh, um, just recently, you know, this person was, um, the book is called Defying Hitler, which is a, a very bad translation of what the book is really mm -hmm. about. But in this book, this man, um, Sebastian Hafner is his name, what he says is very instructive, and he was strongly anti-Nazi, mm -hmm. and um, he has, his girlfriend was Jewish, and indeed they left Germany in mm -hmm. 1938. What he says is this, what, what people forget about uh, um, this transition from the republic, the democratic republic, to the dictatorship was that if there had been an election two or three weeks later, then indeed Hitler would have won um, a clear majority and handily. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this notion that this was somehow a, a kind of fluke that Hitler got in, yeah. that they used terror to keep in power, they used terror. And it's it, lots of terror, but they use, how can I, you know, the question comes up all the time. Look, how can you talk about this being a consensus dictatorship when there's all this terror? Yeah. And I say, yes, there is terror, but the terror is used against people who are already unpopular or thought to be threatening. Yeah. Such as, you know, such as recidivist criminals, mm -hmm. communists, and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, getting those people off the streets, as would happen in the United States, it has to be said, just to just to be, you know make it clear, we you know um, we have the three strike rule, 
and that's, those are the kinds of things that they instituted um, in Germany, and these were enormously popular. Mm -hmm. So they create concentration camps. The people that put in them for the most part um, initially are social people who are social outsiders, people who are alcoholics, welfare cheats, or people who are deemed to be welfare cheats, I guess I should say, mm -hmm. uh, people who repeat offenders and those kind of individuals. And so so you have a situation where the streets are, are cleaned up. There are no longer the beggars in the streets. Mm -hmm. They're now being forced to work in concentration camps. Mm -hmm. And frankly, uh, this, is, this is what makes this authoritarian dictatorship also popular. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's exactly right. It's funny you mentioned Sebastian Hofner because uh, a long time ago, actually, I wasn't. I, I don't know how I came to read this book, but it's called The Meaning of Hitler. Yes. Do you know this book? Yes, I, I do. I, I, I very much admired it. It's extraordinarily short. And, and Hofner is a journalist, by the way, not a historian. Yes. But I read the book, and you know, it was as if the scales were lifted from my eyes because every word of it was this. You know, that's right. <laughs> He's right yes. about that. Another book I'd like to plug um, that relates to something you said was, and I'll try to get this right. Um, it's a kind of revisionist history by a fellow named Mark Mazauer or Mazauer called yes. Dark, Dark Continent. Do you know this book? Yes, I do. Yeah, and basically it uh, is consonant with what you're saying about uh, you know a kind of desire for more order and a failure of democracy in the 1930s in Europe. It's right. a time in which we've really forgotten. And he has some wonderful examples of, and one of them I recall that, I don't know if it's true or not, I should probably not restate it, but uh, apparently Churchill in the 30s um, went to uh, Italy to speak, and he told the Italians that, you know, democracy was only for some people, and it definitely wasn't for them. And so well, yes, of course. And he was famous for saying that Mussolini got the trains running on time. Yeah, right, exactly. I didn't know that he had said that, but yeah, yes. I always was shocked by this. You know, democracy is for us, not for you, so you go ahead with this dictatorship thing. But, you yeah, know, I see exactly what you mean. Let me uh, ask a little bit more controversial question and okay. relate it back to the... Um, Subject of anti-Semitism. Right. You know, there is this large debate in Holocaust studies between the kind of Christopher Browning school and the Daniel Goldhagen school. Browning saying that, uh, you know, many ordinary Germans were sort of in a situation in which they had to act in a certain very unsavory way. And Goldhagen saying that they were predisposed by whether anti-Semitism or whatever it happened to be to act in this way. How does your own work relate to these questions? Well, I'm happy to say, uh, though I don't think the truth is always in the middle, yeah. um, I, I'm somewhat between uh, both schools. What I, what I, I think Daniel Goldhagen's book, Hitler's Willing Executioners, um, is a very important book. It, it was a huge popular success um, when it came out about five or six years ago. Um, uh, it was deeply resented by a lot of historians, mm -hmm. to be very frank about it, because they don't. Um, that there's a lot of professional envy, mm -hmm. um, and also because that, that isn't the only reason. But um, what Daniel said, and in his book, which I still recommend people uh, should read and know at least, uh, what he says is that um, killing the Jews was a German national project, and that Hitler's uh, role was merely to release the brakes. Yeah, he was a catalyst. Um, yeah. he, 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 that's all he did. I mean, so basically the Germans wanted to kill all the Jews, and Hitler basically provided the, um, the situation in which this would happen. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think that is actually the case. I think there was a lot of latent anti-Semitism in Germany prior to 1933 when Hitler gets into power. I think the Nazis were much more anti-Semitic than most historians 
uh, writing um, um, the, the big popular successes like Ian Kershaw or mm-hmm. Richard Evans. Mm-hmm. I think it, that anti-Semitism was much more important uh, to the Nazis than they will concede. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting story why they continually downplay the importance of anti-Semitism as a factor in attracting votes to Hitler, but mm-hmm. they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, I think once, that is to say then, in summary, that um, anti-Semitism is not the only reason that Hitler gets into power, but that no one can vote for the Nazis without realizing that this is the most anti-Semitic political party in German history. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that Hitler in 1933, much less in 32, 31, and so on, uh, actually visualized the Holocaust, mm-hmm. but that he he certainly did want to do something about the Jews. Mm-hmm. He perhaps visualized driving them out. Mm-hmm. He certainly talked about that. He wanted the United States to take them, Canada to take them, anyone mm-hmm. to drive them anywhere, to send them to some place, somewhere. Now, what happens in 1933 onward, and here I think Hitler's role is much more important than Daniel Goldhagen will, will, will um, perhaps agree, that Hitler and Nazis, uh, the Nazi party and uh, government, gradually make anti-Semitism more and more popular. They, anti-Semitism spreads, mm-hmm. the government is openly um, anti-Semitic, um, anti-Semitism comes to inform many government policies, uh, it becomes impossible to overlook and I think at a certain point in 1938 or 39, a lot of people agree now there indeed is a Jewish question, mm-hmm. and wouldn't it be better really if the Jews somehow just went away? Mm-hmm. I don't think they still want the Holocaust or what, what, what comes to be the Holocaust, but they believe now that there is an issue, and wouldn't it be better if it was solved in some peaceful way, perhaps by the Jews emigrating to Palestine or Canada or some somewhere? Now, when the war starts, um, the war revolutionizes the revolution, and it becomes infinitely more brutal, but especially towards foreigners. The the, the war, there is a crackdown inside Germany, but the real terror is um, uh, against non-German people. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of people in the the burgeoning concentration camp system, the vast majority are Mm non-Germans. So the consensus dictatorship and the general agreement, in my opinion, holds. And so you have these foreigners in those camps, and especially, of course, the Jews. Now, I think uh, the, this acceleration into mass murder um, begins slowly with the uh, opening of the war in uh, September 39, and it takes off especially after June 1941 with the attack on the Soviet Union. Yes, uh-huh. Especially, I would... I. I'm in agreement with Christopher Browning and others who now tend to believe that Hitler made a decision on or during October 1941 for the mass murder of the Jews. The reason for the controversy about the decision is we have no smoking gun. We do not have a document. No Führer's Befehl, as they say. And that, of course, leaves the door open for the deniers, by the way, that says, oh, well, it never happened. There's no no such thing. We should also also just pause for a second to plug a book by Browning, um, the name of which sort of escapes me, but it is a very detailed, long study about are you talking? Are you talking about his um, um, the the final solution, uh, um, 
or the I'm sorry, it's the evolution of the final solution. The, yes, it's something I, I can't remember the name of the book. I'm sorry to say, but I just read it. <laughs> yes, okay, yeah, it's the um, it's the origins of it's called the origins of the final solution. Yeah, and it's this great huge thick book, but it only um, it, it deals primarily with the decision making process. Yes, that's right. Uh, from 1939 yeah. to about 1942. Right. It's not about the implementation of the final solution itself. No, it's, it's been not. dealt with very well elsewhere. But he, Christopher Browning did, of course, yeah. that uh, famous book. Ordinary men. Uh-huh, ordinary men, yeah. But yeah, I, no. I, I, I was I, I read the book very very carefully, and I thought it was really terrific. It was the it was the most detailed analysis of the policy decisions that Quite. I had read. And then I also read, kind of in conjunction with it, another book that I would recommend called um, by a fellow named uh, what is his name, David Cesarani, or it's called I, I, Cesarani. Yes, David yes. Cesarani. Do you know this book? Yes, I do. Yeah, I read it's, it. It's, it's very good too. Yeah. There's a number of very good books that come out now yeah. on the Holocaust. Um, 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 but just to go back to the Browning, where I differ with Chris mm-hmm. slightly, he's a very good friend, and I, uh, I'm immensely respectful of his mm-hmm. work. Um, he, he's just a, a tremendous person, mm-hmm. I would add, and as an individual. Mm-hmm. And the same is true. I'm not trying to say anything. Um, uh, the same is true of Daniel Goldhog. Yeah, I fine. know. Actually, I know uh, Daniel a little bit. I used to teach with him at Harvard. So yes, he's yeah, a, he's, a, he's a very he's very, very nice likable, wonderful yeah. person. He's he's very committed, and uh, you know I admire him, and I think he's um, been basically. Um, well, how shall I put it? He he was harsh to uh, in his criticisms of others' work, and um, they turned um, sort of the profession has turned its guns on on him. Yeah, no, I and I think to some extent he's been, although I hate to use the word, but sort of ostracized yeah. from no, the. the the scholarly profession. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any question about that. I don't think you should. You should be uh, any hesitant to, to use that word because he has been. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> but but no. What happened with Chris is that, of course, he was involved more directly with Daniel Goldhagen than I was. But what happened is that they happened to be uh, dealing with similar archival fi- files yeah. in Ludwigsburg. Right. These are files kept by the the court system uh, that investigated these crimes yep. after long after they were over in 1945. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> what happened is that uh, Christopher's book came out first, and it's uh, probably a better book mm-hmm. um, called Ordinary Men. It's certainly shorter. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. Now, what what Christopher does, uh, Chris Browning does in this book, is that he suggests that the in the end, the factors that seem to have motivated these men had rather less to do with ideology and particularly less to do with Mm anti-Semitism and more to do with circumstantial Mm -hmm. uh, conditions, peer pressure, Mm -hmm. um, and and, um, other psychological factors. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, I think um, there's a slight danger of underestimating the importance of anti-Semitism in their motivations. Now, why is it that um, such a misunderstanding, shall I say, should come about. And what we have to remember is that they were working from court documents, and these documents are are put together by prosecutors who are unbelievably gifted and thorough. And uh, so when they're questioning these men, approximately uh, 200-plus men who were involved in one of the police battalions Mm -hmm. who did the direct killing of Jews, one at a time, by the way, shooting them, as you know, yeah, one no, at yeah, a time. Yeah. 
what these prosecutors would get from these individuals was every possible excuse you can you can imagine. I was drunk. I was. It was my peers. It was my fellows. Um, I didn't want to appear out of line, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what they will not admit is that their actions were motivated by malice and or hatred. Mm-hmm. So they're never going to admit to a prosecutor, right. "Yes, I killed these people. I hated them. I killed them, and I'm glad I did it." Because that turns this then into a clear case of capital murder, and you're not going to get ordinary people admitting that to a prosecutor who's about to take them to trial. And so the last word uh, that will come from their mouths is, I did this because I was anti-Semitic. Yeah, that's all right. I think you're exactly right about that. Well, I mean, I, the controversy kind of continues today. I notice it It sort of even makes it way into, uh, I had also read uh, Ian Kershaw's two-volume biography of, of Hitler, and especially in the right. second volume that actually deals, I think it's the second volume, that deals with the coming of the Holocaust. He has a, a, a concept which I really quite liked um, called working, I believe it, he says it's called yes. working toward the Fuhrer. Do you remember mm-hmm. this? In other words, what yes. he says is the Fuhrer didn't need to tell people that he wanted you know, Jews locked up or Jews exterminated or things like this. But he created an atmosphere, a set of incentives in which that sort of action would be um, rewarded. So people worked toward him in that way. And I think it's a, it's a subtle concept, and I think it's one that actually people can recognize in their own lives as, for example, they try to please their bosses. You know, their bosses That's don't right. actually have to tell them what to do. They yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> well, where I would differ slightly with Ian Kershaw um, and, of course, I've had my own little disputes with all these people, including Ian. That's what makes it fun. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, well, it is. It is. Um, uh, but where I disagree slightly with him is this, that I think uh, Hitler made known his ideological precepts far more, mm-hmm. um, far more clearly. And he espoused these. I mean, it, it wasn't just... Uh, just any old thing, I think this will please Hitler. I mean, Hitler made clear what would please him. He mm-hmm. said it over and over again. Yeah. He said, for example, um, uh, on January the 30th, 1939, he is, um, this is the first major speech he gives uh, after the so-called uh, pogrom of um, November 1938, mm-hmm. the so-called Reichskristallnacht. Yeah. Um, and in there he starts this, uh, let me issue a promise. You know, people have often called me a prophet, and let me be a prophet, he says, one more time. Should the Jews succeed again, mm-hmm. namely, of again, course, accusing right. them for causing the First World War, yeah. should they again lead us into a Second World War, then this time the Jews will pay, not just the people of Europe. And it's this promise which he says over and over again. And, of course, at some stages during the war, um, indeed, Goebbels is saying, you know that prophecy he's saying? I'm sorry, Goebbels is the propaganda minister, yep. and he's saying this in newspapers. Hey, hi, folks. Are you reading my lips? <laughs> you know the prophecy thing? I'm laughing, but I shouldn't be laughing. Yeah. Do you know the prophecy yeah, thing? Well, yeah. it's happening. Yeah. Now, I don't know what your average individual yeah. is supposed to conclude from this. Yeah. And, of course, Ian Kershaw is a perfect example of someone. He, this prophecy was put on a propaganda poster and was actually stylized, you know, in that gothic stylized yeah, sure. sort of print mm-hmm. and put on the uh, on street corners all mm-hmm. over Germany yeah. in September 1941, yeah. namely exactly at the moment when Jews were starting to be deported out of Germany. Right. right. So I, you see, my, my notion yeah, is that, that there's a, a, that the linkage between Hitler is not, the, not just sort of this kind of vague uh, 
structural you know, linkage between, you know, Hitler has some ideas, I think, and so forth. He's giving quite specific uh, instructions, yeah. and of course, Hitler is adored. He's regarded as the greatest statesman in, in German, indeed, mm -hmm. in world history. Yeah, no, I know. At that time. So uh, let's um, turn now to the Soviet side right. of the equation, one about which I know a lot more. And let me just set this up a little bit for our uh, listeners who may know some of this. When I was in graduate school, uh, there was a kind of trope, a figure, that was um, good Lenin, bad Stalin. And you mentioned this a little bit in your book, under which Lenin was a sort of uh, mild social democrat interested in the welfare of everyone. Yeah. And Stalin was a very bloodthirsty bad man. Um, what is your take on this? Well, that was, was very interesting. You see, I started off, uh, I started off writing a book uh, in which I was going to compare, um, as everybody does, um, um, Stalin and Hitler. Of course, uh -huh. I started off like everybody else does as well by saying the, that it should be actually. I started off by saying it, uh, the comparison was Hitler and Stalin, uh -huh. and I realized that most of these books, like Alan Bullock and other yep. uh, books like that, most of these books, in fact take Hitler as the norm and and compare, you know, like, okay, Hitler did A, B, and C. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the equivalents that Stalin did? Mm -hmm. So Hitler did A, B, and C, and Stalin did all oh, the kulaks or, or whatever, you see? Mm -hmm. So I, what I did then was to investigate slowly but surely the, the, the figure Stalin, and I said, oh, well, first of all, we have to put it in the proper order. Mm -hmm. After all, Stalin was in power long before Hitler mm -hmm. was... Um, before Hitler's putsch, really, mm -hmm. Stalin was already a major figure. The Hitler putsch of 1923, um, much less, you know, he was Stalin. I mean, was a powerful figure already um, uh, before Hitler was released from prison mm -hmm. in uh, 1920, late 1924. Mm -hmm. So, once I started focusing on Stalin, I realized uh, the more I read, and of course, I had the same exact paradigms as you did in my head, namely that. Stalin was the bad guy, Lenin was the devoted revolutionary, mm -hmm. the good guy, or at least there was this good Stalin, uh, good Lenin, that, and, and Stalin messed up all the things that he did. Right. Now, the more I, I read, and uh, um, of course there are new books coming out, um, about, uh, particularly from the secret archives that uh -huh. were not revealed for so many years, as you know, particularly since the 1990s, a lot of this new material came out, and the more I read... Uh, the more I began to see that indeed uh, Lenin was uh, not the good Lenin at all, but Lenin was the really the man who was the bloodthirsty driver of the revolution, mm -hmm. a man who prior to 1914 already was saying what we need is not just a revolution, we need a civil war. Yeah. And that uh, he said, you know, we can't introduce socialism like a cheap, piece of bourgeois um, legislation. Right. This not that kind of thing. It has <laughs> it requires violence and civil war. Yeah. This guy was bloodthirsty in his yeah. ideas, in his plans, yeah. and then of course he was the one who urged on the revolution at every turn. Uh -huh. And what I have what I show in the my new book, which uh, the Lenin Stalin Hitler book, what I show is that you cannot understand Stalin without focusing on Lenin, yeah. and that le le basically, I would say, uh, Stalin did nothing innovative, uh, create anything really new that 
uh, Lenin had not already introduced, mm -hmm. whether that is purges, whether it is the secret police and concentration camps, mm -hmm. and, 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 um, and therefore it's impossible really to, uh, in my humble opinion, to study Stalin in isolation from Lenin, mm -hmm. because um, from, from 1917 on, uh, Lenin uh, is, the, is the man who is in charge of the avant-garde dictatorship. Mm -hmm. he, he says, look, the, if we leave the workers to their own devices, as you know, they're just going to want lower wages, you know, mm -hmm. the, usual, the usual trade union nonsense. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be an avant-garde party. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to be in the forefront of the revolutionary struggle. And by God, when we get into power, we're going to create an avant-garde dictatorship. Mm -hmm. I and mean, he starts calling it a dictatorship, a revolutionary dictatorship, a provisional. First, first it's provisional uh, revolutionary dictatorship. He calls it that prior to 1914. And already prior to 1914, before the First World War, mm -hmm. he's already dropping the word provisional. Mm -hmm. And so eventually it becomes... Uh, of course, as as some of one of his um, uh, guys, and namely Leon Trotsky, said, this will eventually be um, not the dictatorship of the proletariat, and but more like the dictatorship of the Communist Party, right. and in fact, really the dictatorship of Lenin. And yeah. that's exactly what it turned out to be. No, I think that's right. There's an extraordinarily interesting historiographical moment here, and I know it quite well because I sort of lived through it. And that is, you know, my uh, teachers actually in. Uh, graduate school, some of them at least, and actually, and my cohort as well, were involved in the kind of dissection and even, I would say, to some extent, production of this notion of the good Lenin and the bad Stalin. Um, it, it's it's really it's a it's a very interesting story about how it came about and then you know how it actually was eclipsed and by whom. Yes. Who who now who who was so who was your teacher who? Well, my who, teacher. Well, well, one of the people. Is, yeah, we, we, we can, we'll track him down. Well, no, he was a, he was a great man and certainly a fantastic uh, a, a advisor. It was Reginald Zelnick. was one of the people okay. who was very interested in developing a kind of new historiography, social history of the revolution, trying right. to understand it. And, and the basic thesis, I think, not to be too crude, of much of this work was mm -hmm. that the revolution had a lot of popular support. And that yeah. may or may not be true, but it's not really right. relevant to the question which follows, which they didn't address, and that is what happened mm -hmm. after the Bolsheviks got into power and started things that they called themselves like red terror. I mean, do you right. really need to be an epistemologist or a great historian to understand what is meant by red terror? And, right. you know, they sort of ignored this part of it. And, and um, you know, I think for a lot of us, uh, well, actually not for a lot of us, for many of us, there was a kind of cognitive dissonance because we would read the documents and then we would hear about the good Lenin, but these two things didn't go together. And the person that right. kind of opened my eyes to it uh, was... Um, Richard Pipes, who yes, of course, who who just you know, knew I mean, this from the beginning. He never he never bought any of it, not well, a word I, of it. Well, you know, I'll tell you, uh, it's very interesting that I would say um, a turning point, if, if we could call it that, in my thinking, um, it came um, about Lenin and about about communism and the whole sort of thing and the evolution of communism. A uh, turning point, I think, was. Uh, of course, it's very difficult, no doubt, to p trace it to a single book. You know, you know it doesn't happen that way. But uh, on the other hand, this was very important. And this is the Francois Furet mm -hmm. uh, book, The Passing of an Illusion, yeah. mm -hmm. and uh, the idea of communism in, in the West. Mm -hmm. Now, that book is about probably, what, 10 years old by now? Yeah, or it is, yeah. Maybe a little bit older. Uh -huh. But around that, it's around 10 years old. Yeah. And that was a, a seminal book. Uh, written by a man who was a former
former member of the Communist Party, yeah. a, a well-known French historian of the French Revolution primarily. Uh-huh. Um, and he wrote this about how uh, the West, and particularly certain intellectuals, but large uh, large groups of them in all countries, not just the United States, but France, Britain, in, in Germany, and so on, how they had basically um, given uh, Lenin and co. pretty much a free ride yeah. um, in saying, well, you know, uh, to quote, well, I, of course, lots of people claim to have said this. I'm not sure exactly anymore who did. I used to, I used to think I, was, I knew who said it, but the basic attitude was summed up, shall I put it more cautiously, by the New York Times reporter Walter Durante mm-hmm. when he was confronted with, uh, well, how can you say in the 1930s this was such a wonderful country when we have this famine going on in Ukraine and all these kinds of things? And Walter Durante of the New York Times, who won a Pulitzer Prize, by the way, for this, said, well, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. Right, yeah, exactly. I didn't know that was uh, Durante. Now, he's the one who... This, this is the one who usually, in, in, most recently, I've, I, I mean, I've tracked this down, I've tried to track it down. Uh, it's possible that this is a, a Russian saying uh-huh. that he um, he used, but certainly it's been traced to him and attributed to him most often. But the idea being, and the most important idea, the one you're talking about, namely that, you know, of course, you know, Lenin did horrible things, but, you know, on balance, the country really, you know, moved forward. It was you know, on balance, it was a good thing. Would I want to live in Russia under these circumstances? No. Of course not. Yeah. But, you know, the, for the Russians, it's okay. Uh-huh. And we had the same attitude, by the way, in the 70s towards the Cultural Revolution in in, 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 um, in China. We thought, well, you know, would it be so bad for professors to have to go to work in the countryside for a while? <laughs> that doesn't sound too bad. Yeah. What, we, what we didn't know is that, you know, tens of thousands of people were being murdered in the name of this. Yeah, no, it's good. And and of course, it was unthinkable that we'd actually want to go to live in in China. But we thought, hey, this is a good thing for the Chinese. You know, it's sort of like development. This will help them develop, and it'll be a good thing. Yeah, it's a very patronizing but, attitude, really. It is yeah, terribly. Yeah. It's almost I, dare, I won't say it's racist, but it's certainly patronizing yeah. at the at the very least. Yeah. Uh, the idea, of course. Now we now know, of course. Uh, and I'm reminded of a, of a, a line in um, of the very famous novel by uh, Boris Pasternak, uh, Dr. Zhivago, mm-hmm. uh, when one of the characters, uh, Dr. Zhivago, looks uh, at the, uh, his female companion and says, how long is it um, that we have to pay for the sins of our fathers? Yeah. And he, uh, she says, I think it's four generations. <laughs> and he says... That's funny. He says that's 200 years, yeah. and we're still paying for Peter the Great. Yeah. No. So uh, I don't know what if it's quite. I'm not making an equivalency here between Peter yeah. the Great and Lenin. Yeah, I see. Yeah. No, I see. But I would say that at the, but I don't think the Russians are going to get over. The Soviets are going to get over uh, the Russian Revolution and the experiment there for a long time. Yeah. No, I think you're at right. the present moment. Just to, just to bring this right up to date, at the present moment. The Russian Federation, which is a reduced uh, um, um, country from, you know, it doesn't have Ukraine anymore, it doesn't right. have Georgia anymore, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, and so on, or Belarus. But nevertheless, it's still a, the largest country in the world in 11 time zones. It's still a big country. Mm-hmm. And Russia today has a population now of 145 million. Uh, it is uh, the projection in 50 years is that uh, Russia will have a population of 50, uh, of 100 million. Yeah. That is to say that it is, 
involved in a major uh, demographic, well, I suppose you could say we're on the edge of a major demographic uh, catastrophe for that country. And this is, to be very frank about it, this is still uh, paying for the sins of of the fathers. And it it, it is uh, sad to say that uh, so much of this, um, you know, for so long we were in denial and uh, in the West, and never mind in, in Russia, where the Lenin still resides in the mausoleum, uh, uh, you know, in Kremlin Square. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in denial, and we did not want to see the evils that uh, were pe- perpetrated by, by communism. Yeah. Now, I, as a, sorry, as uh, someone who went to the London School of Economics, yeah. which was in the um, 70s, uh, and 60s and 70s, notoriously very extremely left-wing, uh-huh. and you know, lots of socialist and communist meetings all over the place. You know, I had to. I've, I've basically like to think now I'm I'm a moderate centrist uh, and a non-committed and uh, so on. But on the left, it was for a very very long time taken as an axiom that this was fundamentally a good thing, yeah. and anybody who criticized it. Anybody who said this is an, you know, this is like, uh, if you say any conservative, let me put it another way, if any conservative said anything was wrong about the Soviet Union or China or something, they were automatically assumed to be incorrect and wrong. Yeah. Anyway, just, I mean, Richard Pice is is damned, you know, very well as much as I do. Richard Pice is a fantastic historian and unbelievable. uh, strength. He's routinely defamed as being, you know, oh, yeah. a right-wing nut and oh, this yeah. and the other thing. I know, so I know. It is quite incredible. But what you said about the London School of Economics was true at Berkeley in the 1980s. Yeah. I mean, it was just, you know, the thing about it was I, I kind of went to the Soviet Union for the first time as a sort of starry-eyed, quasi-democratic socialist. But uh, honestly, when I got there, I couldn't really believe what I was seeing. Um, yeah. I, I really couldn't believe it because it wasn't really what I was prepared for. And I came back with a very different opinion. But the people who were all around me, many of them who had been there as well, didn't have that same opinion. And I always wondered about this. There's a there's a good book. I'll plug another book um, called The Fellow Travelers yeah. um, by a fellow named David Shute or Shout or I don't know how you pronounce his name. It's C-A-U-T-E. Oh, yes. yes, yes. It's very readable Cout. and very good. How do you pronounce it? Well, I've always, I've always called him Cout. Cout. I don't know, but it's called The Fellow Travelers, and I would highly recommend it. Yeah, but to go back to Pipes for a second, yeah, I I can remember reading for the first time uh, Russia Under the Old Regime, which actually isn't about the communists. It's it's about early modern sort of of 18th and 19th century Russia, and and, and just thinking, you know, this is a very sensible way to look at these things. Uh, But but you're absolutely right. He is routinely pilloried as a kind of right-wing fanatic. But you can read, you know, in the 50s he wrote books, you know, The Formation of the Soviet Union. Which, which, not based on any, there, you know, no secret archives, no, just published material, basically, as far as I could tell, and right. interviews with people who were there, and, right. and he says in all particulars what Lenin was up to, rebuilding yeah. the empire, complete ruthlessness, total devotion to the cause, absolutely, you know, totally disregarded, uh, you know, sort of just basic principles of humanity and human rights, well, you know, just just well, completely a fanatic. This is 1950, well, 1956. Oh, <laughs> he I, well, you see, the thing is that um, what happens with people like this, with with uh, Richard Pipeson uh, is that um, anybody who you know a lot of people who who, who damn him so much, um, they they really haven't really read the book. But most importantly, they know the answer already, and yeah, no, they're not really interested. No, I, I mean, that's exactly right. He, he did this new little book. I know you know this. The what is the unknown Lenin? The unknown Lenin. Yeah. 
with the unknown Lennon, Richard Pice, and it's just uh, all it is is um, a collection of documents that yeah. he found that were deliberately uh, kept from being published uh, in Lennon's works. They're all they're simply documents that Lennon wrote, published, sent here and there, or yeah. communications of various kinds. Yeah. And these were deliberately not published because yeah. they would obviously detract from the in- Lennon's image. And he, uh, Mr. Pipes, then put these together and published them. And of course, um, you can read them for yourself. Forget his yeah. commentary, which yeah. is uh, right. not 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 uh, crucial. Right. Just read the documents for yeah. yourself, and you will yeah. see what he wants. You know, this is the man who who you know who's who's there saying things like you know. Uh, execute, execute, you know, hang him higher and, yeah. you know, find tough people and yeah. on he goes. It's no. amazing. Oh, I know. Yeah, I know. It's quite right. There's a good um, biography, a recent biography by Robert Service about Lenin. I think it's called Lenin, A Life, in which I think it's the best biography I've read, which, which is very clear eyed about the kind of um, person Lenin was. One of the anecdotes I, I just will recount very quickly. Lenin was a very tough guy and he felt that social processes should work themselves out somehow. And uh, uh, Service describes him during a famine, I believe it was famine of 1890 or 1880, I don't remember which, uh, in yeah. which, in which uh, Lenin would just step over dying people. And in explanation, to, instead of helping them, and in explanation to this, he would say, well, you know, these things have to work themselves out. <laughs> and I was just like, my word. <laughs> yes. That is a different person than I've ever met. Um, yeah, no, it's quite interesting. You it know, is. I, I should tell you, we have taken up a huge amount of your time, but I, I could talk about these things endlessly, and I'm sure that our listeners could, could listen to them and listen to you talk so learnedly about all of them. But let me close with just this question. Um, what are you working on now? Okay, uh, um, I, I promise I, I'll be a good boy. Um, the first thing is that I, I would just re- just draw attention to one quote in the uh, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler book, and that is at the in November, uh, uh, in, sorry, October 1917, when the revolution takes place uh-huh. in Russian time. Maxim Gorky, who's an intellectual at the time, says, um, you know, um, can this experiment in socialism that Lenin wants can this work? Of course it can't. But will it hurt to try? Well, of course it will. He said, uh, Gorky said, I promise you that the Russian people will pay for this experiment with lakes of blood. Yeah. And indeed, they, they have. Did. Yeah, no, there's no they have. Yeah, there's no, question no. Um, but, uh, you know, I go into all this in the book, and it's, um, you know, there, there are some things about the book that we haven't gotten into, unfortunately, which is the, the whole evolution of the of the conflict between Hitler, Hitler and, uh, and uh, Stalin in particular. Yeah. But the new, what I'm doing now is um, what happened with this, uh, the, this book here, which is a large book, but don't be deterred um, uh, by that. It's um, got big print. Um, what happened is that I got toward the end and I started to do uh, a word count and it was getting up to 280,000 words. Mm-hmm. And this isn't the kind of number that publishers want to hear. <laughs> no. They want they, they like nice round numbers yeah. like 125,000. Yeah, that's right. They don't want the, a large books like that because it, it's difficult to sell and difficult to make any money on them yeah. from their point of view. So what I did is I began reducing or cutting it short um, as I approached the, the end of those um, regimes, uh, the Nazi regime and the Stalinist regime. Uh-huh. And uh, I carry the story to the end of, of, of uh, Stalin, but what I'm doing now is that I have, I'm focusing uh, the new study on um, the period 1945 to 1956. Uh-huh. And what I'm, there is no more uh, Hitler or not much Hitler in the book, 
but what I'm focusing on now is Stalin, mm-hmm. and uh, particularly Stalin and Stalin's influence in um, in Eastern Europe and uh, throughout the the creation of these new regimes there, and of course Germany as well, but also his his, his broader influence. Mm-hmm. And so I think you know the publishers are all very excited about it. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful. Well, that's um, terrific, it was incredibly exciting writing this last book, the yeah. Lennon book. I mean, every day was an excitement for me. I don't know if it's going to going to come across to the readers. Now, this one I'm doing now, I'm feeling the same way about it. I Great. can't believe that, you know, I feel that there's so much there that we don't know or mm-hmm. we, you know, we've been looking in other places and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. But it's a very exciting period. And, you know, we tend to just look at it in terms of what, the Cold War and um, uh, the Cold War tends to overshadow the social history of what went yeah. on in those times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we're just yeah. concerned with sort of like watching a badminton match between uh, between the the USSR and the USA, yeah. and we're we're forgetting about the the right. people underneath. You know, underneath the we just sort of overlook that. Yeah. Well, we really look forward to that book. Does it have a preliminary title yet, or an ETA, or anything? It doesn't. It doesn't. It's so you know, um, I gave it a title. Um, now it's just called something. I had a real fancy title for it, and I was uh, applying for a grant um, at the university here, and the dean has to sign off on it, so the dean has to actually see your grant. And mm-hmm. so I came in, and he's a busy man, and he came in to look at the grant to sign it, and it's just one page, okay? Mm-hmm. And um, one page summary, and he says, uh, he looked at the title, and he looks me in the eye, and he says, um, this isn't one of the kind of proposals you have to read the whole thing to figure out what it's about. <laughs> That's very funny. I want a dean. So, like that. I want that dean. Can we get that dean here, Doc? <laughs> so I said, okay, let's revise the title right now. Yeah, right. What do you think would? Yeah. How about yeah. you know? Um, Social and political events in <laughs> Europe, 1945, 1956, or something like that. Yeah. So, so it covers from the end of the war to the Hungarian Revolution. Uh-huh. But I think after the Hungarian Revolution, the 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 the, the, um, the systems are sufficiently in place that I'm not, I'm not saying no change takes place after that. But I think this is the most vital period where the change is really, you know, uproarious uh-huh. Uh-huh. and and fundamental. But it, I, I thought it was the funniest line coming from the dean. Yeah. I think it should be a principle yeah. for all 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 writers of grants in the future. Um, yeah. Just yeah. give them a description. Right. Um, yeah. That's exactly it. That's funny. Well, we really look forward to that. And um, we, I just want to thank you very much for giving your time to us today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, the book is Lenin, Stalin, and Hitler, The Age of Social Catastrophe by Robert Galadley. And Robert, thanks very much for speaking with us today. Well, thank you so much for all your time and trouble. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. You too. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Robert Gladley about his book, Lenin, Stalin, and Hitler, The Age of Social Catastrophe. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and we will talk to you next week.